Greetings, everybody, uh, and I want to welcome our guest on this episode of the podcast, uh, the lovely and talented Wanda Silva, uh, Silva Capital Solutions. That's still right. That's the name of the company, isn't it? So I got that right? That is correct. That is correct. Thank you, Pat. So, Wanda, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you so much for including me in your podcast. Well, it's so funny because you know that you are indelibly burned in my memory. Uh, your birthday is November what? Fifth. Fifth. And yes. so on November 5th of whatever year that was, 2011, I was at the Argonaut Hotel in San Francisco where the board met to you know bless the selection at the end of this lengthy search, which we're going to go through again. And so, uh, and you came up to me and said, uh, hey, today's my birthday. I was like, I did. This is so cool. <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday, Pat. And I it do seems too. like it was not too. that long ago. So it's it's funny. And you know, every time I see on Facebook come up, it's Wanda's birthday. It marks my <laughs> anniversary. Like it was just so great. And I am so happy. You know, there are so many people to be indelibly tied with in history, and I'm so happy and lucky that uh, that it's you actually, which is uh, which is great. So, uh, thanks for that. So, okay, well, and so, thank you as well, and I'm I'm so grateful for you. We start at the beginning, and that is uh, where did you start? Uh, isn't it funny? I don't know. As long as I've known you, well, where were you born? Well, let me tell you the story. Uh, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Um, didn't grow up with a lot for us. Uh, Pat vacations were camping. We went camping often to a place called Lake Norman. Um, wonderful, wonderful memories, um, from that time, but, uh, never saw a motel or hotel until I was well into college. We just, uh, that wasn't, that wasn't part of my life, but at the age of 14, you could go to work for the Charlotte Mecklenburg Park and Recreation. So for my first two summers, and I had to work if I wanted any extra money, um, I sat at a park all summer and did crafts and watched swimming pools. And uh, uh, it was sort of fun. And it's so funny you mentioned my birthday. So when I turned 16 in November, Mm -hmm. I went to work for Ivy's. Now, Mm -hmm. Ivy's was ultimately purchased by Marshall Field Department Stores. But I went to work. I mean, the day I was 16, I was so excited I could actually start making money. Um, so I, I got a job at Ivy's and they put me at the Christmas wrapping station at Ivy's. <laughs> and this at the time is a, a, a mall called Eastland Mall in Charlotte, um, which has, I believe, uh, sort of went downhill, but is being rebuilt. Um, not on, It was not on the South Fork side of town. It was the other side. Um, so to this day, if you ask my, my children, uh, if someone says to me, will you please help wrap presents? I will very politely say, no, I'm going to forego that opportunity because I wrapped so many presents that Christmas. So, <laughs> so that was the, that was my, those are my first two jobs. Uh, then I went to Chapel Hill, uh, got my undergraduate degree in business and communications. Mm-hmm. I think probably one of the first times when it became apparent that I was going to have this theme of the road less traveled was when I couldn't decide on what I wanted to major in. I just couldn't. So what did I do? Well, I designed my own major and I did a thesis and I had to get it approved. So if you ever see that I have a... What was the thesis? It was an undergraduate degree in business and communications. And I had to do a thesis on why those two melded. Um, God, you look at my life today. And in my opinion, if you don't have the ability to communicate and have emotional intelligence along with business intelligence, I think there are many things in life that you can't do. So (laughs) the road less traveled. Um, And then... 
I think I heard maybe Celeste use this term and maybe Kurt. I wanted to be in the field of personnel. That is the word that was used back then. But I was told that if I really wanted to be serious about being in personnel, that I should probably get a graduate degree. So uh, I took myself up to the University of Wisconsin. Um, I, I was a resident assistant when I worked at, at when I went to UNC Chapel Hill, but up to Wisconsin, had to get a job and get my master's degree um, in order to be serious about personnel. Yeah. And I was recruited out of Wisconsin back to North Carolina. I worked for a company called Secor. Secor was a cable copper cable manufacturing company okay. owned by Siemens and by Corning. Mm-hmm. Um, they eventually moved into fiber optics, but I did become the personnel manager. Mm-hmm. Another funny story, Secor um, had quite a bit of uh, cash, and they had a Learjet. First job out of graduate school, I'm a personnel manager, and what am I doing? Flying on a Learjet, because we had to be in places all over the country. Oh, great. Well, I had no idea, Pat, that this is not the way life continues. <laughs> I have never been on a Learjet since. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, where, they located, were they located in Wisconsin or North Carolina? Where were they? Hickory, North Carolina. Okay, got it. All got places. Got yeah, Hickory, North Carolina. So I got back to North Carolina and we opened our fiber optics manufacturing facility in Hickory, but they needed somebody to move to Raleigh to recruit engineers for fiber optics. And so they gave me that opportunity um, and I wanted the experience in recruiting. And that's where I met Tony. Uh, my former husband, as you know, is, is now deceased, but um, he and I got married in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. Then we moved to Atlanta, and mm-hmm. I had, as you know, as you know, I have two boys, mm-hmm. um, and we had those as soon as I moved to Atlanta. Alan's 32 now, if you can believe that. I, I, it seems like he was just born, and he's a pilot for Southwest, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he flies out of Dallas now. He just moved to Dallas from Phoenix. So if anybody's on a Southwest flight, um, look for Captain Alan Silva. <laughs> and then Scott is my entrepreneur. Scott's 30 now, and he is the CEO of Atlantis Digital Holdings. He is following in his mother's entrepreneurial footsteps. Wow. So, so yeah, that is I think so that's sort of my so growing up story. So, okay, that gets you to Atlanta. What year did you move to Atlanta, by the way? Uh, 1990, I think. Okay. okay. We got married in 89, so we moved here in 89. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you, you've been in Atlanta ever since, uh, right? Yes. And so how on earth did you uh, stumble upon this strange planet called PEO? Oh, did you do M&A first or did you do PEO first? Like what, what led you to this space? You know, this is going to be another one of those um, road less traveled stories. Yeah. But it's going to take me a couple of minutes to walk you through it. Yeah, no, it's good. Every time I walk through it, I am absolutely amazed that I got here, how I got here, and that it was absolutely perfect. <laughs> so yeah. um, so we moved to Atlanta. I worked for a company by the name of Heller Financial Services. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in the 1990s. Um, I sort of started to like this finance and accounting stuff. I actually went back to Georgia Tech, got a certificate in finance and accounting, all the while giving birth to children and raising them. But I really enjoyed it. Um, and I said, you know what? I, I, maybe I can do something in finance and accounting. Uh, I was the VP of HR for Heller Financial, and I was six months pregnant with Scott, and the director of HR came to me, or whatever the title was, and said, oh, well, you're having your second child, and this was a man, and he said, we certainly believe you probably don't want to work full time, since you are going to be the mother of two, Um, so we'd like to offer you a part-time job, and, um, you know, I, I thanked them graciously, and one of the greatest gifts in life I ever got is that within a week, I had an offer from a public 
healthcare services company looking for a director of human resources. Wow. And I was told by a man in the recruiting industry in Atlanta that there would be no way I would get a job at six months pregnant. Wow. That's the job that got me into M&A. So I joined this public health care services company and they were doing an acquisition a month. I had the chance to work on 32 acquisitions and Good Lord. went in and director of HR. Um, <laughs> okay. I wrote a white paper and this is 1992 now. I wrote a white paper on the value of outsourcing the human resources functions and allowing me to build a people strategy division that focused on the financial profitability of this healthcare services company. So long time ago, I, I wrote a white paper on outsourcing HR. See, it all falls together, right? Yeah. Um, we grew this, this this public company from about 83 million pat to about 253 million, primarily through acquisition. Good Lord. And another another gift along the way, um, the leaders of that company were, were, I don't know if they had a choice, but kind enough because we were moving at such a fast clip, um, not only I was responsible for implementation and assimilation, all the while working with you know our CFO to make sure we were still profitable every quarter. Um, I had to be pulled into every acquisition at the beginning because we were moving so fast. Yeah. And although that implementation and assimilation was my primary role, I got to watch deals happen from the time we met these small companies to the time we got the transaction closed. Um, and here's this, here's another one. I get this call one day. Um, there was an M&A advisor with a small company, and he brought healthcare service companies to us at the public company. And he said, hey, uh, did you know what a PEO is? Did you pick up the phone to talk to him about the deals we were doing with him? I said, I have no earthly idea. Uh, would you like to tell me? <laughs> so um, this individual explained to me what a PEO is, and he says, Wanda, I think this industry is going to be one that consolidates, and I want to hire you. Um, I'll teach you the ropes on the other side, on the deal doing side. I know you've got a lot of experience in that now, but you've also got the inside experience. Um, and I want you to take us into the PEO space. Wow. So this was in 1997. And Kirk did say he thinks his first conference, as do I, was that one in San Francisco long yeah. before I knew yeah. I would meet you in yeah. San Francisco that yeah. November day, November 5th, many years yeah. later. <laughs> yeah. And so that person that reached out to you, they're not still, are they, are, did they stay in the industry or are they one of the? Uh, no, no, I, no, I, I actually um, purchased the assets and the rights to work in the PEO industry and do those deals. And um, that firm stayed in healthcare services for many years. Okay. Um, and I went off and started my PEO thing. And I was with that firm for a year or so. So they sort of helped me get started because, you know, I really hadn't done deals, you know, as right, a right. deal maker. Right. Um. But I, I got my wings. I graduated and I started Silva Capital in 1998. It all falls together. You know, I've got yeah, this incredible right. passion yeah. for the field of human resources. And I, I now have a love for M&A and doing deals. Yeah. And yeah. Um, how, how I get so lucky every day to marry those two together, I'm not so sure. But Well, you know, again, I've said on this before, uh, one of my favorite sayings is the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right. And you've been a testament to that. There's no doubt about it. But you what know? Like how how the heck was that gonna all fall together? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and 63 deals later, here I am. Wow. Do you uh do you remember what the first PEO deal was? I do. Who was? I do. Uh I'm pretty sure it was with Craig Vanderberg. 
that he bought a company or I sold one of his earlier companies. And of course, Craig is still around with Tryon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was another gentleman that was in Ohio. Uh, believe it or not, the two owners' names were Scott and Alan. Same names as my two children. Um, I, I, my God, my, Craig's might have been my second, but I sold this Ohio company to somebody mm-hmm. um, owned by Scott and Allen. So I do remember those first two. Could I tell you of the other 60-something in between? Most of them I could tell you. But, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but the industry was pretty small then, was it? Wasn't it? Or what was it? Was it growing? Oh, it wasn't. No. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, Pat, I think we had about 1,200 Companies that claimed to be PEOs. Good. Um, you and I know that some of those were not pure play PEOs. Right, right. Some of those um, people um, were in orange suits in jail because they were taking arbitrage money and doing the wrong things with it. <laughs> so, but there were a lot of companies that claimed to be PEOs. And then, you know, we went through, we've gone through so many cycles where we had fewer and less and uh, people came in and people came out and then there's one lady in the industry, her name's Wanda, she consolidated a whole bunch of them, <laughs> along with my friend Alex. And yeah. Um, yeah, so we have quite a few, but we, we did have a lot in and the late 1990s. What, in your view, like what explains those cycles? Like what 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 happened? Like why, yeah, what, what were those cycles about? Or, or do you know? No, that's a great question. And I think, you know, we, we see cycles in the economy, cycles in M&A, but I think in PEO, it always has made so much sense that the more worksite employees you have, the better your ability to negotiate vendor contracts, the more efficient you become, and the less you have to pay for those vendor contracts because those vendors are getting more and more business. Mm -hmm. So consolidation just simply has made sense in our space. I mean, good Mm -hmm. consolidation where the right buyers buy the right companies where they fit. So I think it was just about this industry being a perfect place where people could get get bigger um, by virtue of acquisition and, of course, internal growth as well. But yep. I think it was that simple. Yep. What's yeah. What's the state of it? What's the state of play today? I mean, given your perspective, right, the last yeah. plus years of you know the ups and downs of the of the M and A business and of the industry, what's your sense of where we're at now? As an industry. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think as I thought through that question on your other podcast, I, I thought about sort of what I see going on in PEO, but I thought it might be also good to sort of mention what I see going on in capital markets and in M&A. Yeah. Um, because they're both a little bit different. So I have always, as you can see, um, been bullish on HR outsourcing and on PEOs. I think it's one of the most exciting times we have ever been in, Pat. You know, our industry has been through a lot. Some of those cycles weren't pleasant yeah. before we were certified, when people were not running companies as they should have been. Yeah. Um, right now, our industry is understood. Our industry is regulated. Um, we're established. And I love the word that I think it was Alex used. We're resilient. We have proven that time after time after time, no matter what is thrown against us, um, legislation, yeah. government regulation, yeah. um, people saying crazy things, we get it. Um, so I think it's one of the most exciting times I've ever seen for the industry and for the space. That's encouraging. Um, yeah, that's encouraging. And what's 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 uh, uh, unusual, I guess, or maybe it's 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 uh, happening in other industries is we don't have twelve hundred PEOs anymore, but our penetration, you know, that the, the industry's like quadrupled in size, and the penetration in the workforce is growing, even though the absolutely number of PEOs is not. 
not a 1200, it's more like a couple hundred, you know. Without question, without question. That's part of the excitement, I think, you know, with increased regulation and the increased need for technology. And, and I, I listen to all the every single one of their earnings releases. And um, and, and I love the way that Burton Goldfield is so, he's so articulate about explaining why SMBs can't survive as well without having a PEO work for them so that those companies can truly focus on running their business. And HR, HR is so complex. Yeah. You got to be totally on top of technology, totally on top of regulation, totally on top of all the things that are changing every day. And if something changed right before we spoke and I don't know about it, then we'll have to add that to the podcast because it could happen. Um, but but I think just what we do for SMBs is just so very important to those businesses' success. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, I think the headwinds, in my opinion, in terms of what I see, are are positive. I, I, are we going to run into glitches along the way? Are we going to have other things we have to go through and, and deal with? Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, we are so blessed. I mean, I, every time I see Burton, I was like, you're such an evangelist. He's a huge evangelist for the industry. Paul Sarvati, huge evangelist. Yep. Uh, Carlos Rodriguez, a huge evangelist. Amazing. You know, uh, now Maria Black, who's taken over. Yep, for now Maria, yeah. Good friend. Those companies, you've got evangelists for this industry that are just uh, unbelievable in terms of making the case like you just did, making the case like this is why this is such a great value prop to small businesses, right? Yeah. And, you know, John Gibson was interviewed yesterday on the news about, you know, about paychecks and sort of their vision of the world. He's another incredible leader who, you know, started with those of us like me many, many years ago. And now I just laugh. I said, yeah, yeah, John's a good friend of mine. Now he just runs all the paychecks. <laughs> and Maria, another, another good friend of the years. And she's, you know, in Atlanta a lot. And just yeah. so, so proud. But they're all amazing, um, amazingly articulate when it comes to explaining what PEOs do. And, you know, 25 years ago, people really didn't understand the complexity and no. what we were going to bring to the world. No, yeah. that's, that's exactly right. But yeah, it's funny. I think about it, like you I just think like you knew them when, right? All these folks you knew. When, I know. Right? <laughs> yeah, they say Wanda who? Yeah, right. <laughs> she? Right. Uh, no, I do. I mean, I just, I, I just, I. Yeah. I love it. Of course, um, BBSI has their earnings report. They're usually the last, and theirs is today. So I'll listen to Gary Kramer and see what he has to say. Yep. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think we also sort of have to look at what's what are the headwinds in the. What I what I call mergers and acquisitions, maybe investment banking, capital markets. I think from my perspective, because of what I do, you have to talk sort of step back and look at macroeconomics yeah. for a minute too. You know, gosh, yeah. Pat, <laughs> who would guess we're in a new geopolitical era? Does we're the a, does like this Silicon Valley bank stuff? Does does that you know I mean that that issue um, mm -hmm. is that affecting availability of capital? Are you seeing that out there or not in terms of the smaller banks or are we going to sail through that? I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to sail through it. You know, there are all these things, I call them puzzle pieces yeah. that impact what is going on in the economy and the world and, and this technological revolution and all the things that are going on. And one of those puzzle pieces is what's happening around us. And this, you know, what's going on in the banking industry, in the banking crisis, somewhat unexpected, although now some people say they sort of knew that was going to happen. I don't think I did. Um, I think it's one of the puzzle pieces, Pat, and it's not a good one. It's not a good one. Um, I'm hopeful that we are going to see a lot more, but we didn't expect 
after Silicon Valley Bank, we were going to see several more, which we have. So it's just one of the many puzzle pieces that I think put us in a time where there are so many mixed signals out there. As a matter of fact, you know, I got the, um, you know, all I do is PEO every day. People just laugh. Um, but today, Barrett came out with their report, and theirs is called Human Capital Technology and Solutions. And the headline is that there are mixed headlines between ADP and the job opening labor turnover study. Mixed mi mixed headlines, mixed mm -hmm. messages mm -hmm. all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uncertainty, a dicey economy. You know, the economy was growing at 2.6% on an annual rate of growth in fourth quarter. Now, now it's currently growing at an annual rate of 1.1. That's a pretty big difference in first end of last year to, to first quarter. Yep. Um, uh, did we see a rising interest rate today? I haven't checked yet, but they say we're still going to have some of that. Yeah. Um, this banking crisis, uh, I mean, I'm just looking at all the pieces of the puzzle. Um, does it absolutely make the cost of capital more difficult and, and more expensive and more questionable? Absolutely. And I think for PEOs, um, you know, they're all making sure that their, their banking institutions are absolutely shored up, make sure that they don't miss a payroll. And those companies that... Um, were part of that glitch and had to find a way to pay all their worksite employees and had people working 24 hours a day. Absolutely amazed me, but they all did it. Yep. They all did it. Absolutely. So, you know, we've got these like puzzle pieces that are like, oh, we can have a recession. Yeah. People yeah. are like, in Atlanta, we have a lot of companies that are letting people off. But on the other hand, Pat, I keep hearing that, you know, our economy is incredibly resilient. We have businesses here that are hiring, can't find enough people. Yeah. People are getting raises. Yeah. Families are spending money. So, um, yeah, I think it's just mixed signals yeah. everywhere yeah. when it yeah. comes to the economy and M&A and investment banking. But Yeah, it's so interesting. Again, think of it as puzzle pieces. You're exactly right. And all those pieces come together and make up the economy. I mean, there's so many uh, you know, uh, factors out there that, that, you know, are pressing against us every day and against the deals that you do. Let me switch gears a little bit. I talked to uh, Proberg about this, is that uh, in the M&A world, if I'm looking to acquire, what am I looking for? What am I, what am I looking at when I look at companies to acquire? And I'm going to ask you the flip side of it, too. But for the acquiring company, what are they looking? What do they look at? What are they looking for? Well, I think the first thing an acquirer has to do is understand their own business, their own business plan, their, their business strategy, um, have that one, three, five plus year plan in place. And then sort of if you start there, then you can back into how are we going to get there? Can we do that simply by inorganic growth mm -hmm. or do we need to have acquisitions? And then from a buy side perspective, if acquisitions are part of it, they need to figure out what those companies look like, what those deals look like, what those worksite employees look like, what is going to fit for that acquirer that gets them to that one, three, five plus year plan, but they've got to do it right. If you just buy companies for the sake of buying companies or just roll up companies in an industry without a plan. I think the acquirers are are missing the boat. Um, and, and, you know, in the past you know couple of years, we've had some acquirers that have been willing to compete in a market where at most times we had um, more buyers than sellers, which yeah. meant prices were higher. Yeah. And we had some buyers that said, you know, that's not what we want to do. That's not yeah. going to work for us to overpay 
um, because it's not going to fit into our business plan and business strategy. So I think buyers sort of have to go from where are we going, how are we going to get there, and back into what are the right companies to buy, and then how much are we willing to pay, and how are we going to make it work? This whole assimilation and implementation, I I read tons of of studies about it. I got out of that, so I get in the deal side because I like doing the deal and getting out. It's a whole lot easier than trying to implement and, and assimilate yeah. that stuff. Trust me when I tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's how acquirers need to look at it. Interesting. Okay, and then for sellers, what do they need to look at? You know, I, I have a theory that every company should always be ready for the future, mm-hmm. and no matter what. So I don't like again, sort of similar to what I said about acquirers. As a selling company, what is your business plan? What is your one, three, five-year plan? Where are you today? Where are you going tomorrow? And how are you going to get there? And so I think just as a business, you have to understand all those components. But you should always be ready to exit. Um, We have a product called, I call it Wanda's Spa, um, where we actually specifically work on getting PEOs ready to, to sell. They may never sell, but why wouldn't you have a business plan? Why wouldn't you have all your data together? Yep. Call it a data room or call it we have it here, you know, in our computers, but you need to have all your financials. You need to understand absolutely everything that is at risk and what that arbitrage looks like over time. Um, you need to make sure you have all your eyes, all the things that we we put together in due diligence. I just think every seller should have in place at any time and be ready for tomorrow whatever might happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah. some sellers wait to prepare until they get to the point where it's time to do so. But I, I feel like sellers should always be ready. Yeah. And then when the time is right or the right buyer approaches or a company decides they want to go on the market, then they're not scrambling to try to figure out what their company looks like and what it's worth. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting, right? That, that's just that that's probably just good business advice, right? Not M&A advice, but good business advice. But but yeah. let me also ask you again from both sides, from the buyer side, and then I'll circle back and ask you from the seller side. Yep. What, what are the most common mistakes that buyers make? What is it you it's, see? Yeah, what is it? Yeah, you, yeah, I think. Time, time again where you're like, oh, they blew it again on X. Like, what is it? You know, and, and when I, when I, I want to walk through what I, I see changing on the M&A front, I think that buyers in the past did sort of surface due diligence. Mm -hmm. They didn't dive nearly as deep into it as they should have. And while I'm not part of what happens after a deal closes, I think that the buyers would say one of their mistakes was not diving into it deep enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and not having everything covered and, and finding surprises after the deal yeah, interesting. closed. Okay, or we'll... for buyers just buying for the sake of buying versus yeah. having that plan. I yeah. think that's another mistake yeah. we see sometimes. What about yeah. for sellers? What's the common mistake? Not being ready. Yeah, yeah. Not being ready. Yeah. I mean, just not not being audited, um, not taking advantage of all the educational opportunities that we have through Napio or the networking that we have just sort of sailing along until something changes that was unexpected. And then they decide they want to sell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, our sales preparation, our spa service, um, advisory services is, you know, where are you going? How are you going to get there? Let's go ahead and get you ready today. So you know what it looks like. Yeah, You yeah. know what it will look like. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing is just not being, yeah. not being ready. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Let me um, switch gears yet again on another thing that I so identify you with. Uh, you know, we've got uh, Women in Napio that has been a huge success. You know, uh, th- that begun by Lee Yarborough, who also has been on the podcast. And, you know, um, so, you know, she talks about that. And and when we kicked it off, um, you know, I, I thank you every time we do it. I thank you as sort of the fairy godmother of, of win because I don't know, it was years ago. And you said to me, because our conferences are so jam packed, you know, scheduled. Yeah. And you said, hey, you know, can I get like a half an hour or an hour? I just want to get some women in the industry together. And right. I, I don't I just remember one time at one of the restaurants, you had like, I don't know, a dozen women at the table or something like that. So they all came with Wanda invited them and they want to do it. <laughs> you know, now when is, you know, we get hundreds of people to every event. So I guess I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the whole thing. And, and on Lee's, uh, uh, you know, our, our chat, you know, she talked about being a woman in this industry. So I want to go from the from the Wanda to the world is, uh, you know, when you started, in 1990 or 91, whatever, there couldn't have been a whole lot of women in the space. So talk to me about, if you would, about your experience being a woman in the PEO space and the PEO M&A space, which is like a subset of a subset of a subset, right? Um, right. And then, then we'll get a little more into, uh, you know, a win in the PEO industry. But tell me about your early start. Again, in 1990, how many women were doing M&A in the PEO space? Well, very few were and very few still are, <laughs> to yeah. be quite honest. It, yeah. It's just it's it's a male dominated field. Yeah. Um, so what was that like? And yeah, it's sort of making your way and still today, again, you're so prominent in the industry and everybody knows you and, and loves you and you're so well known and, and, and well respected. Like what what was that journey like? You know, um I have never felt like I have been treated any differently than um a man. In any way, shape, or form, I've just been known for being good at what I do. I've I've learned a lot by virtue of of um, sort of mentors and people surrounding myself with people that know a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. But I I never have felt like I've been treated differently. Um, and I I understand now and go to when and some of the things that that some of the other things I'm doing now to help get gender parity. Um, I, I think as I began to talk to other people, I realized that a lot of people did feel they have been treated differently. So so what is, I just, I feel like I'm just me. I just do investment banking and M&A and I know how to, I've learned how to do it well by making a lot of mistakes. I make mistakes every day, um, but I don't feel like I've really been treated any differently. One of my goals is to continue to help women who are younger, um, perhaps in college, realize that this is something they can do. Um, you know. A lot of times the path is for somebody to graduate, get in one of the bigger firms, be an analyst, sort of be able to watch it from being an analyst to being the person that puts together the sims and the materials to developing relationships where they can bring deals into those firms. Um, And we're seeing a little more of the larger firms coming into colleges because I think that's where you have to start to, to recruit that um, people of color or women or d- different nationalities, I think you've got to start at the beginning because women just haven't been taught that this is a place they can be. Right. Um, yeah, I, I just don't feel like I've been treated any differently because it's just what I do and what I love. Yeah. So, I, so I've been very fortunate. Yeah. And so, yeah, so tell me, like, in terms of, for you, I, 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 it's the, uh, you, uh, you reminded me, it was the Women's Executive Affinity Group was yes. the forerunner of WIN. 
So, well, so what what generated that for you? Like what what was it and how'd that go? Oh, it was very selfish, quite frankly. And I remember I did call you and I said, hey, okay, there's hey, I'm in Washington, D.C., the capital there's of one, self-interest. I'm the last. There's right, exactly. It was the perfect place. It was one evening when there was something, well, nothing was planned. And I, and I called you. I said, hey, you know, I have these women that I've just gotten to know really well. And are you okay if I plan a dinner for me and these women? And it included, gosh, Kathleen Hillegas and Andrea McHenry and Lee Arbrough and Celeste Johnson and Christina Nelson, just to name a few. But it was just very selfish because I thought I just want to hang out with some of my best girlfriends who are leaders in this industry. And we we started this informal group called WEG, Women's Executive Affinity Group, and we would have calls. Um, And and our calls sort of began with what are your challenges in business? And we're under non-disclosures and all that. And what are your challenges in life? Mm-hmm. And as those calls continued, it became just the opposite. The call was almost always about how are you doing personally? What's going on in your personal life? And if there were you know, things, we would talk about them. But we just became this incredible group of women who were great friends. And as you know, Lee took that when she was um, the chairperson of the organization. And she took that to the national level. And we now have WEN, which is every time I go to one of our meetings, I just... I'm just in awe of what that has become. But it was a very selfish desire on my part just to have a bunch of my best girlfriend and PEO leaders at dinner at the same table. That's so um, great. And I say it's an unbroken string from that to win. And yeah. uh, and you just feel the energy in the room that the win events have just been so yeah. great. And you see, and I'm sure you notice it too, like the number of women in this industry has, has, has grown exponentially, oh. right? Oh, you know what? I remember at one of the CEO um, forum things in California, um, Lee Yarbrough and I will tell the story that we were sitting beside each other on the bus and she looked at me and we looked around and she said, you realize we are the only two women on the bus? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, that's a very good point. She goes, what are we doing here? <laughs> so no, there just weren't that many women in leadership or or as part of an APO leadership team and the board. Now you you, you look at it and it's, it's drastically different. We have so yeah. many amazing female leaders. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, certainly Lee, but you know, we have one as chair now and Kristen, she's just been great. We got to, I had a little yep. chat with her a week or so ago, but you know, just just everywhere through our leadership really has been great. And and win has been part of pulling people in, you know, which has been terrific. Yeah. We're, I always say I see people on the on the calls, the webinars, uh, faces, you know, I, I don't recognize 80% of the faces pulling in people that we don't know and that we don't see, which is so great. But now I have a place to go where they feel welcomed. And, um, you know, I'm on the planning committee for for when and we have some things that we plan to do at the national meeting where we'll be sort of paired up with some people who are new and are sort of people that are standing in the corner, not knowing what to do or who to talk to and and make sure that these women feel feel very welcomed. Um, You know, that's become another another um, sort of passion for me. I think, you know, that I'm on a board director for a group here in Atlanta called Onboard. Onboard is a 30 year old organization path that was originally called the Board of Directors Network. It was started by um, CEOs of companies like, you know, um, Home Depot and Coca-Cola and executives. And originally it was started because nobody really knew if there was gender parity on boards or not 30 years ago. So started with, let's let's do some studies. KPMG is our partner in that study. We do it every year now. And while we've made some headway in terms of gender parity, and gender is not necessarily always men and women. Again, it could be nationality. It could be 
um, you know, it can be race, it can, you know, it can be all kinds of things. Um, but what we found on Board of Directors Network, now on board, was that there was not gender parity um, mm. at all, and in particular for women. So on board has become sort of the organization in Atlanta where we we want to make sure that those stats are moving in the right direction. But we also want to make sure that women in particular have the knowledge, skills, and abilities, yeah. and most importantly, the networking yeah. to get on boards. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of it is about networking and, and meeting people and having them understand that you're ready and being ready. So we yeah. have we have, a, we have a next gen, we have a, a younger group, we have an Ignite, a middle group where people are maybe 10, 15 years from being on a board. And then we have Onboard, which is for, you know, C-suite and um, corporate executives who are close to being ready to be on boards. Yep. So we make sure women have the skills and abilities, understand what they bring to the table. We have a program called Onboard Accelerator, which I went through, which allows you to recognize what you bring to a board. Yep. So um, I think this has really just become a passion for me. Is um, That's so great. Even though I never felt I was any different, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's just yeah, me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know a lot, a lot of women have, so yeah. we're going to try to make a difference there. It's so great, and Norman Paul, who I also had a chat with, he has a quote that he likes that I know I'll butcher, but it basically says, "You know, fortune favors the prepared mind." You know, and so what you're doing is you're preparing them. So that if something opens up, they're ready, like they're on deck and yeah. they just jump in. And that's that's what makes the big difference, you know, which is it. So yeah. tell me, uh, given your your uh, experience in this in this field and in, in this space, uh, what is your advice? Two fronts. First, for uh, new people in the M&A space. And what's your advice for people that are new to the PEO space? Let's take them. Let's do M&A first. I think for people that are new to M&A. Um, find mentors, find people, whether they're in your firm or in another firm, or there are boutique middle market M&A firms that are just simply well respected. Um, I find some, I had, believe it or not, a guy that I met at Heller Financial when I was in Human Resources became my M&A mentor. Um, worked for Focus Investment Banking, who I, I, you know, looked at merging with and decided to keep doing my PEO thing and still the capital. But, um, Every time I ran into an issue, and sometimes they were they were deal issues. Sometimes they were I don't know how to handle this interaction with somebody. But he became my mentor, and is just continues to be he and his wife Susan are dear dear friends. Um, they moved to North Carolina, which sort of pissed me off because I don't see him as often. <laughs> but um, so from him and I, I would say find a mentor, um, listen, watch and listen. I think in anything you do, until you sort of can really take in what's going on and how it works. Don't try to get ahead of yourself. Mm-hmm. And in M&A, it's not only about, you know, you got to be able to bring the deals in. you got to have the relationships. And that there is nothing more complex than getting a deal from start to close. Yeah. And you can never understand it until you go through it. And a lot of times they, they don't close. A lot of times they fall apart. Yeah. Um, a lot of times they come back. Um, the best ones will always end up happening. But I think for somebody in M&A, I think those would be my um, the, the, the couple of things that I would say. Yeah, that's um, great. That's great. Great advice. Uh, OK, yeah, so not, what about not an easy career? And I would highly recommend nobody start their own business doing it because there were many years when I didn't close deals. Um, and um, I'm, I'm grateful that I stuck with it. Um, so, yeah. So Pete, I thought about that because I know you've asked other people that question. Yeah. I think yeah. there are two things. First, when you get into this industry, become educated. 
There are so many different ways to build a PEO. There are so many different business models. We're seeing so much unique thinking from some of these companies that are are new and are just starting up. And I, I look at Mark Sinatra and what he has built with Aspen HR. Oh my gosh, um, one of my favorite people in the world. But um, before you can do anything like that, you have to know what you're doing. So get educated. Yeah. And I, I would tell everybody that there is nothing you can't learn as a member of Napio. Oh, you thanks. have every tool available online, um, on at the conferences. And number two, get networked. Yeah. Our industry is small. Our industry is very loyal. But our industry is also competitive friendly. Yeah. I know of nobody that would think of competition before helping someone. They will always sit down in any state, in any place, and help a person who wants to get into this industry. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah educated and, and be networked would be the yeah. two things. So what... Uh... Like you were at that first conference in uh, San Francisco that <laughs> was at, uh, you know, a long time ago. Um, what are your favorite memories? What stands out? What stands out for you? Not necessarily the conferences. Obviously, my arrival as CEO would really have to be your favorite. That, that would be number one. Yeah. On your birthday. <laughs> but, right on my birthday. <laughs> well, I think you um, thought I was crazy because everybody on that bus decided they need to bring a bottle of wine for my birthday. Yeah. And we had quite a bit of wine on that bus, if I remember. That was a wild um, night, man. And you know, I was saying, what the hell did I get myself <laughs> into, right? What the hell have I gotten myself night. into? Yeah. What, yeah, um, favorite memories. What stands out in your mind? You know what? You know what? It's what just amazes me every day is that um, I, I refer to people as as clients, but mm -hmm. so many of those people are also they're they're family to me. They're friends. Um, you, Melissa, who we're going to miss terribly. Yeah. Yep. Um, your family. Yep. Um, and my clients have become family. Now, I, when you do what I do, you have to be you have to be completely objective, and you have to know how to separate those two. But yep. I look when I go to a conference, and I was actually just looking at. The list that Nancy set for Washington. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see so and so. And I can't wait to see so and so. And I can't wait to catch up on so and so's kids. And yeah. um, and and we are friends on Facebook because we are friends and because we love each other dearly. And Brent Tilson and his his new girlfriend. I mean, they're yeah. best friends. Yeah. I talk to them once a week. And I'm not naming people just to name them, but yeah. Yeah. all the things that stand out. Now, when I go to a conference, I just can't wait to see all yeah. my friends. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly um, right. Oh, my gosh. And all the places we've been, everything we've done in Washington, D.C., the National Archives. Yeah, that's um, The memories we have, the places we've been, the most beautiful hotels we've been to. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I could pick any one. I think the National Archives is the one that yeah. probably really was one that really touched me the most. I um, agree. I mean, I, I tell people, you know, the first time we went, and again, thanks to John Slavic. We're, yep. we're, we're eating dinner in the room that's got, you know, the, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. And I tell people, you know, I was like, you know, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. I mean, no, it moved it wasn't. everybody. It moved no. everybody. And you're crying like we're in such a uh, historic yeah. room. Right? Yeah. It really was. Yeah. Yep. You know, the CEO forums. Um, gosh, yeah. you know, for me to be around and, you know, I'm able to host the dinners in Washington and um, along with a couple other service providers and the one at National. Um, gosh, to look around that room and be with the most bright and brilliant leaders yeah. in our industry. I think those yeah. are some very special memories as yeah. well. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So those are all great. So, okay. So so I want to talk a little bit about what I see going on in M&A because if yeah, I yeah, don't, please. people will call me and ask me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm going to save myself some time. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so, so I think a couple things, and this is specific mostly to um, somebody like me that's industry agnostic and just in PEO. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to have the same amount of activity we had in 21 and 22. It's going to happen. As much as people hate me to say this, we're not going to see the valuations and the pricing we saw mm-hmm. in 21 and 22. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, just, it's not going to happen. We, we were in a cycle. Yeah. That was what happened by virtue of um, supply and demand in our industry. Yep. Um, buyers cannot continue to overpay. And that's another thing I would tell you that sometimes buyers do. If you overpay, think about it. You paid 10 times, you paid 10 times, you paid 10 times, and your shareholders say, well, we're with 12 times, but you paid 10 times, five times over. So we can't get that now because you paid too much. Yep. So it's it, you, you just got to be, you've got to be careful. Um, I think from a deal perspective, we're going to see four things that happen. I think we're going to see a big focus on flexibility when it comes to deals, deal structure, pricing. Pat, you mentioned it. Cost of capital, cost of getting cash is going up. I think we'll see less mm-hmm. cash in deals. I yeah. think we'll see more more, more non-guarantee structures. Also, and this is another question you asked that came up. I think we're going to see an increase in more well-defined and sophisticated due diligence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing a lot of um, people bring in third parties, Q of E reports from people that are objective and not in PEO. Because mm-hmm. we all get blinders on when we're in one industry. And sometimes we can't see outside of that. So I think we're going to see that due diligence be more sophisticated. Yeah. Um, a greater appeal in M&A structures where there is a partnership. Okay, you get here. Here's some chips off the table, but we're in this together. I want you to be you, Cheryl, holder, PEO, and I want you to have a meaningful interest in this organization going forward. Mm-hmm. And we'll be together um, in the good times, and we'll partner together in, in the bad times mm-hmm. when the sharks are around us. Mm-hmm. And we'll do that such that the transaction structure fits mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth thing I think we're going to see, uh, you know, PEOs by virtue of what we do, they they manage risk. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I read my April PEO Insider, which I love as well. Yeah. And you know, the whole magazine was about risk. Yeah. And my, my good friend Thad, who, you know, I sent yeah. him a note and I said, oh, my, I'm, you know, and he and his wife and then Allison and Michael and their family are very special friends as well. Um, but that, I mean, there was that whole magazine was just about risk. And I think given that arbitrage is one of the ways that PEOs make money and they rightfully should so, in addition to, you know, getting fees for what they do. I think we're going to see an increased focus on, on risk. Interesting. But I also think we have to remember great companies are always great companies and high quality PEOs are always going to be able to move forward with the sale when it's the right time. Yep. Great companies should continue to be great companies. What's your value proposition? Where are you today? Where are you going tomorrow? How are you going to get there? And who are you? Don't try to be what everybody else's PEO is doing. Try to be what is right for you. Yep. Yep. No, that, right. that's great. I got a roll there. <laughs> no, that's great advice. And so two things. First of all, that sounds like the column that you uh, you have to get to Chris Cheney. He wanted me to remind you. But this, Thank yeah, you. That's the column. That's it. It's perfect. That's your article. It's great. Oh, I told him. I said, Chris, honey, I said, I, so I got this podcast I got to do. And I, with all respect, I think Pat, Pat was a little, a little higher than you are. It's, it's hard, I, to be, I, hard to be in demand. The other thing is I talked to a, a, a private equity guy years ago. I'd only been here like a year or two. And he right. was in the PEO space. I forget who it was. It was a long time ago. And loved, 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 loved PEOs. And I said, you know, if you want, you know, we can come, you know, talk to a group of private equity folks or something about the industry. And he said, no, I, I never forgot it. He said, I love PEOs, but he said, your problem, you NAPIO, your problem is you don't have the inventory, right? Because I've got like a bazillion private equity firms out there who would love to, you know, yep. buy PEOs. But he's like, 
we got 250 PEO members. He's like, you don't have the inventory, right? You just don't. I yeah. don't. I, I never forgot it. Yeah. So you agree? Right. That, that kind of goes to your first point, right? Yeah. No. Absolutely. There. Um. The number of we use the term assets or the number of companies um, available in a particular space is is critical to the ability to that for that space to continue to consolidate. Which is why I just think we're not going to have as much activity. We have fewer companies, and a lot of those companies are these young kids who have these amazing ways of building a PEO that we would have never thought of yeah. you know, 20 years ago, which is yeah. so, which is why I think it's such an exciting time exactly. for us and for the space. No, I, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So the question we've all been waiting for, what is yes. something that we don't know about Wanda Silva? This would be almost impossible to answer because, you know, you've been around, everybody knows you, you've got so many friends in this industry. You know, did you dance at the Bolshoi or play Carnegie Hall or, you know, <laughs> play Mine is not that exciting. Like what? Like what's what is something we don't know about Wanda? Could there be? Yeah, a- I think, yeah, the one people thing I think that most people do not know is that I volunteer for hospice. Mm. Um, and some people are very scared when I tell them that they're like, oh, OK. Um, and I'm also a trained person for what's called the 11th hour team. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a formal training you have to go through, and I'm trained for a well-star hospice to be on the 11th hour team. Um, you know, I lost my father, my mother, and my sister, um, and I, I don't know how I could have gotten through that without hospice. I had no idea what they provided in terms of education and guidance and love and support um, when people are, are dying and their family members are left to try to pick up the pieces. So a couple of years after Lisa died, I said, you know, I have this odd comfort with helping people exit, <laughs> exit their businesses and an odd comfort with being with people until they take their final breath. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, th- I think I've been given a gift. I, I think I need to go go to training. And it's a pretty lengthy training to go through. And the, um, the place where I spend most of my volunteer time is called Tranquility Hospice. Again, part of the Wellstar Hospital System here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It's an 18-bed facility. And it's for people who are in their final days. Um, and um, we go in and we sit with them if they're coherent. We sit with their family members who need us more often than not. And the 11th hour team is the group that's called in. We will schedule hours at a time when either a person is dying alone and we just don't want them to die alone. So we want to have somebody with them. Um, and we're also there if a family gets to the 11th hour and they say, we, uh, we, are, we don't know, we need help. And so we will literally each go in for a couple hours at a time through, you know, those last couple of days and, and be with them to help that transition be one that um, can be as 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 positive and as beautiful as we can make it. So that's something I don't think a lot yeah, of people know. No, about. That's so unbelievable. And I've seen it, you know, on uh, you mentioned it or allude to it on Facebook. But how do you keep your well full? Like, isn't that isn't it draining? Isn't it depressing? Isn't it? like tragically sad like how do you how do you do that over and over again you know that's that's a great question um i think you have to yeah i have to balance how how when i volunteer and if there's a particularly difficult sunday um i have to be careful not to to um get too involved (laughs) with the families and want to go back and see what happened the next day and the next day and the next day because they they become my family after a couple days um, and sometimes I'll have to take a couple a couple weeks break and and not go because it is very intense. I, I what I learned is that you know we're this is my opinion we're in this lifetime for a short period of time. Yeah. And you know our our, our soul will continue to live forever. Our our bodies will not. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's 
death when you're older or sudden or unexpected, um, we're all going to get there. So yeah. I don't see it as as something that makes me sad. Um, I, I see it as just a point at which that person's body is no longer with us, their soul, what they've done, their legacy, it will continue to live on. Yeah. Um, and, and I see it as just as part of life, you know, and well, it doesn't it doesn't make me sad. It, it makes me gracious. It makes me have so much gratitude for, you know, lo- the little silly things that upset us every day. And then you see that and you realize, you know what? <laughs> I really have absolutely nothing to complain about. Yeah, yeah it certainly um, gives you perspective. There's no doubt about it. Of any other little, you know, somebody cutting you off in traffic or, you know, uh, somebody at work or whatever happens. It's, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, that, right, that email or something. Who cares? It gives you perspective. But it does take a special kind of person. And you are that person. And I admire you for doing that. It's just, well, I'm hopeful my tombstone will say, not my deal tombstone, but my tombstone tombstone. Well, actually, I'll be in an urn. My urn will say, she helped people exit and left this world a better place. That's good. Because there was a parallel between, you know, people saying goodbye um, to their loved ones and people exiting. Exiting a company and selling it is very, very emotional for business yeah, yeah. owners. Yes. Somehow yeah. I was given the gift to be able to, to help people exit. Well, we're yeah. We're all better off for it. We're lucky for it. So oh, I'm, I'm the most fortunate person in the world. I, I'm so lucky. I just, every day, just, I just, I thank the stars. I'm very fortunate. That's great. And I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah. this was, this was pretty painless, wasn't it? See? It was awesome. <laughs> you know, I had to go back and think, you know, it's been, tw- it's been a lot of years. <laughs> Part of me is like, oh, wow. <laughs> Remember when? No, I just really appreciate you being will, willing to do this. Like I said, when I, I put my initial list together, I like I gotta talk to Wanda. Like it's like uh, you're you're like the Garden of Eden. Like all roads lead to Wanda at some point or another. So I just want to get you on here, and um, and that's great. And and for selfish reasons too, because once we post this, you know, you you're like the biggest connector in the world. So our traffic <laughs> will go up, which is fantastic because you can Aww. get everybody, which is a good thing. So that's that's good. But I really you so that you're able to do this. And so, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, Wanda Silva, Silva Capital Solutions, my friend and longtime industry veteran and friend to so many, just a great human being. Uh, Wanda, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you, Pat. Thanks so much.